0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics, you have entered into... Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you as uh, we learn how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And yes, I am Gary Machida, the host and sensei of this program. Got a fantastic show in store for us today. You know, as you can probably tell, I mean, this is the smaller part of my uh, library. This is the office part. So as you can see, there's plenty of books around here, but actually a majority of my books are in the other room. Why? Because resources are so important for defending Explain the Faith, to be able to go to your bookshelf and confirm things or get new ideas about how to defend the faith. So it's one of the things I always recommend to anyone who wants to be a defender of the faith is you got to develop an apologetics bookshelf. You need to have really great resources that you can go to and learn from, and uh, pick up a lot of uh, good information and even good techniques and how to explain things about history, things about the church, doctrines, and so on. And uh, so that's that's why I teach my kids at Homeschool Connections. I do online courses on apologetics for middle school and high school age kids. I always tell them, you know what, you got to have a, a, your own bookshelf, you got to, of course, have a Bible, a catechism. And, you know, and then we move on from there, just get really great resources. So uh, getting great resources is part of the name of the game. It's the tools of our trade as being um, defenders of the faith. And that's why I, I love this series that we've been doing with uh, the founder and director uh, or former director of Catholic Answers, Carl Keating. And uh, he's been coming on the show every month, and we've just been diving into classic apologetic works you know there's so many great works that have been made over the years that uh are classics they, they are good solid defenses of the faith they they provide very good solid material history and so on unfortunately many of them are just collecting dust and on your uh, shelves and used bookstores and uh you know what we need to avail ourselves of whatever resources we can get our hands on in order to uh, learn more about the faith so we can defend and explain and clarify the faith for others. And so we've been going through all sorts of uh, classic works that have probably been forgotten by most people. And today we're going to do just that. On the other side of the break, Carl Keating is going to come on our show, and we're going to look at yet another Classic work. This this isn't specifically an apologetic work, but it is a very good historical work. It's Eberhard's summary of church history. So, um, go and look forward to that. Carol is always fun to have on. He gives some great background information, and of course, you know he he's been dive, he's been uh, you know in this thing what we call apologetics for quite a while. So he he's plumbed the depths and he knows the gold from. the the fake gold, right? So he's going to be coming on. We're going to talk about this classic work by Eberhardt. And that's on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to talk about our finding the fallacy, help sharpen our critical thinking skills. Today's finding the fallacy is the appeal to tradition. And we also meet an early church father. Today's early church father is a great early church father because he is St. Leo I, otherwise known as pope leo the great so uh great stuff in store for us great early church father uh great guest and some great uh historical uh resources that if you can you should try to acquire them and also i want to welcome all you great people listening to the show to the dojo welcome aboard, everybody. Beginning with a live stream audience and also all of you listening on radio around the country and also be a podcast around the world. And uh, welcome aboard, everybody. It's great to have you with us. And uh, I just want to point out a couple of resources as I do every program because we're always getting new listeners. Uh, If you uh, are going to not be able to listen to the whole segment with Carl Keating and you want to listen to it, the best way to do that is either download our Virgin Most Powerful Radio phone app, or you can always go to our website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, on that, you can uh, keep abreast of all the cool stuff, including the upcoming uh, Marriage and Family Conference, Virgin Most Powerful is going to be producing, and also all our programs, including Hands-On Apologetics. So if you're going to miss part of the program, you can access this program through the Virgin Most Powerful phone app and or the website. And while you're there, tell your friends about it. Share the program and help increase our audience. Because when we have great guests like Carl Keating, we can't keep it just to ourselves. We we need to uh, get this information out to anybody who needs it. Um, also, I want to mention the um, uh, my uh, way to get a hold of me. If you'd like to shoot me an email, love to hear from you. It's from questions at com. Just type in the email questions at hands on apologetics.com that comes directly to me. And I love hearing from all of you. Um, let's see. Um, had a great time with, uh, Matt Swain this morning. I was on sunrise morning show. I don't think we were national though. Uh, They were doing a fundraiser and, uh, he had me on to talk a little bit about the importance of Catholic radio and and how we ought to uh, support Catholic radio, because I I firmly believe that Catholic radio is key to revitalizing the faith and uh, spreading the word about Christ and his fullness and his church. And uh, you can really do that on Catholic radio. So uh, I was promoting there. And of course, I want to promote Virgin Most Powerful Radio as well. So if lots of people's lives have been changed through Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So I just want to give a plug. Please support us through your prayers. Support us by telling people about us. And if you can, financial support is greatly appreciated as well. All right, let's go to the Finding the Fallacy, which is the Appeal to Tradition. Now, this title often uh, causes confusion. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly this fallacy is. The Appeal to Tradition is appeal to antiquity. It's also known as appeal to common practice. It is an argument in which the thesis is deemed correct on the basis of the correlation with past or present tradition. In other words, the only reason you believe your argument is right is because it has always been done that way or people have always thought of it as being right. Now, in the title it says tradition and this causes confusion with people because Some people mistakenly think that the appeal to tradition is actually what we do in apologetics by appealing to the early church and and history and so on. And that's not the case. Uh, It is kind of like the appeal to the status quo is what's going on here. And that only that is the evidence for it being correct or wrong or why somebody should adopt it. When we appeal to tradition, sacred tradition in the Catholic Church, We're not committing this fallacy. What we're doing is we are appealing to the historic witnesses to the earliest faith. So we use the early church fathers to do so and all sorts of other resources. So we're appealing to them as witnesses. We're not appealing to it just simply because it has been done this way. Now, of course, if something's true, truth doesn't change, right? It doesn't um, fundamentally change at all. We might grow... uh, uh, truth may become more clear, but it never substantially changes. So, of course, truth will uh, be the, should be the status quo. It should be, have some record of antiquity, you know, because truth is truth. It's always true and never not will be true. Um, but that's not what we do when we appeal to sacred tradition, which, of course, is not the same as this, the appeal to the status quo or the appeal to tradition. All right, so that's our finding the fallacy for today. Let's go to the early church father for today. He was St. Leo the Great. St. Leo was probably of Tuscan origin, uh, though he calls himself a Roman, under Popes Sixtus III and Celestine. Before him, Leo was an archbishop of the Diocese of Rome and was on official mission in Gaul, that's modern-day France, when he learned that Sixtus had died and that he was himself chosen to succeed to the See of Peter. Hastening back to Rome, he was consecrated on September ninth, 440 A.D. The date of his death is uncertain, except that it is rather late, in the year 461. Leo is the first pope who did not die a martyr's death, which really tells you something, 440 and we finally have a a Roman pontiff who dies of natural causes. In 1754, he was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict XIV. Leo's reign was burdensome, one in which he is well acquainted uh, during the invasions of the Vandals and Huns. uh, From without, schisms and heresies from within, chief among them, was the Monophysites, who believed Jesus had one will, a kind of com- combination of divine and human will, or excuse me, nature, one uh, nature, divine and human nature, of which uh, we saw something of that with St. Peter Christologus. Uh, after the disgraceful uh, procedure of the robber synod in Ephesus, it was Leo who called a meeting. Uh, the Robert Council, which has stuck with it for antiquity, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was expected to repair the situation and did very clearly condemn both Nestorianism and Monophysism. Unfortunately, a misrep- misapprehension grew in the East that Chalcedon had contradicted the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD and that Leo's epistle or Leo's tome. Uh, had condemned Christology of St. Cyril of Alexandria, neither of which are true. And indeed, uh, both councils are a pillar of And that is our early church father for today. Pope St. Leo the Great, coming up next, Carl Kitty, stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 526 Two one five one. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody, to Hands On Apologetics. And like I said, uh, good solid Catholic apologetic resources, or just good resources in general, are so key to being able to explain, clarify, and uh, share the faith with others. And so that's why I love the series that we've been doing with Carl Keating where we're blowing the dust off of some really great classics that really shouldn't have dust on them. We should be reading them. And uh, that's exactly what we're going to get in today. We're going to have Carl Keating, who, by the way, is the founder of Catholic Answers. Nowadays, he's a full-time author. Uh, So far, uh, he has 16 books, many of them are Catholic apologetic classics in themselves, such as Catholicism, fundamentalism, debating Catholicism series, Booked for Life, No Apology, and such. He also writes on other genres, such as literature, outdoors, self-publishing, and uh, other things as well. You can check out all of Carl's great stuff at carlkeating.com. And Carl, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics.
1: Gary, it's always great to be with you. Thanks.
0: Yeah, so um, so how are you doing? I imagine you're probably back from a uh, major hike.
1: Actually, no, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm but I'm planning a major hike in a couple of weeks. I'll be uh, going into the bowels of Grand Canyon, oh. and I'm especially looking forward to that because of the eight trails on the south rim that descend into the canyon. I've been on all but one, and, and on this hike, I'll be on that one missing trail. So. Uh, nice. I'm looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, um, and beautiful scenery. Um, th- in order to do that, I don't know anything about that. Would you have to register to to go on a hike in the Grand Canyon? Uh,
1: for a day hike, no. But okay. for an overnighter, you have to have a permit. Uh, the canyon is such a fragile place with, with so few places that you can camp. Uh, that are physically possible to camp at. That there there are quotas, and so for every trail, uh, every route you want to take, you have to get a you have to apply for a permit, and they're often very hard to come by. You have to apply many months in advance for the popular trails, mm-hmm. and even then your odds are fairly poor. But I'm going down a down a you know, sort of middle popularity trail and up a very unpopular trail. Uh, the one coming up is reputed to be the most difficult trail on the South Rim. It's not been been maintained for decades. It's really steep and loose. And from it, from I'll be at the Colorado River when I'm starting my hike up. It'll take me two days to get back to the rim. It, it's a close to five thousand foot elevation increase. Wow! So that's that's going to take a while. But I'm looking forward to it, and uh, yeah. I'm already. Probably tonight, going to start laying out my gear early, so I can make sure that I've got everything I need. I don't, you know, inadvertently leave something out of my pack that I need to take. Because once you're down there for several days, it's it's what's on your back.
0: Yeah, and if you forgot right. it at home, too bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you don't want to leave something behind that's vital.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah exactly. it,
0: Yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Talk about great stuff. Uh, Today, we're gonna uh, talk about a classic historic work, historical work uh, by Eberhardt, Newman Eberhardt.
1: Yes, we are. And it's a work that I'm guessing very few of our listeners have ever heard of and very few of them have ever heard of Newman Eberhardt. So let me say a little bit about him. Uh, He was almost all of his career, a seminary instructor at uh, the seminary in uh, uh, Camarillo, California, the seminary for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Eberhard was born in 1912, and he died in 1995, and he wrote only three books, Uh, and I'm fortunate to have all of them, and the one that we'll be talking about today is really a two-volume set. And it's called a summary of Catholic history. And each volume of the hardback is about 900 pages. So it's not, you know, so it's 1,800 pages of a summary. <laughs> so you've got a substantial amount of history there. Uh, he also wrote a uh, one later book, uh, which is called a survey of American church history. His summary came out in 1961. In 1960, 1961. Uh, the survey came out in 1964 and it, I have that as a paperback it may have only been printed as a paperback but it's a very fine overview of the history of the church in this country in this continent and uh, Eberhard taught church history to seminarians for you know more than half a century and uh, I think he must have done an excellent job because his books are really top rate. And the great pity is that he didn't write more. I wish he had, but uh, his first responsibility was to be teaching future priests, and I think he probably did that quite well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you say he, he he was born in the twenties? Uh, no, nineteen twelve. Ninety twelve. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So w- when was the survey? 40 years, The survey came out in in, uh, two
1: volumes, Uh, and the first volume was in uh, 1961, second volume 1962. So he was, you know, late 40s when he finished writing these. And uh, he was a a priest of the uh, Order of St. Vincent de Paul, and, uh, you know, was... uh, very well respected for not just teaching history, which is his main point, but he also taught philosophy and patristics and so on at St. John's Seminary. So, uh, in this book, he has an interesting sort of apology for what he's trying to do. In the preface, he begins by saying that uh, the present summary is offered to assist students in attaining a working knowledge. Of this subject that is church history. Uh, intermediate between a brief survey and an exhaustive treatment. Uh, and he goes on to say that the seminaries in particular, but others, you know, many desire this, but they have too many demands on their lives to go whole hog into the study of church history, and yet they need, need more than just a little survey that you might find in a 200-page book. Okay, mm-hmm. So he's He's done a survey that takes it from day one of the church all the way up to his own time, which is basically say the end of the 1950s. And so, you know, prior to the Vatican II era. But this is really a thorough book. Um, you know, he's quite modest to call it uh, a summary of Catholic history. Because, yes, from a scholar's point of view, you know, even 1800 pages, that only is a summary. Because the church is, <laughs> and that's not even 100 pages per, per century, right? Yeah. But, Uh, Nevertheless, for most readers, this is a substantial uh, investment in in time and knowledge about the church and its history.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. uh, Well, you're basically uh, covering, you know, two millennia of uh, the life and events of the church and its interaction with the world. I mean, even summary form, it's going to be pretty substantial work. I mean, I think anything less would be... uh, not very useful.
1: No, I mean, I think a lesser book, and I don't have a particular one in mind here, but let's say I just said 200 pages, that's at least the kind of book that every Catholic ought to read just to get the basics of church history, really the basics, okay? Because most everybody in the Q's knows a bit about what happened in apostolic times, or at least in biblical times, and they'll know some things that happened in their own lifetimes. But in between, you've got 19 centuries. And most Catholics in the pews can tell you almost nothing about that. And so, a 200-page really summary overview of church history would be great for them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, I've always thought that history, whether church history or, or general history, is one of the most consoling of uh, study areas uh, because it. Uh, there's a German uh, secular historian in the 19th century, and his his point in writing was to, uh, he said, to demonstrate how it really was, tell the story how it really was, what really happened. And that was his goal. And I think that's really the, the goal of every good historian, to tell things as they really happened, what really occurred back then. And I think if that happens, the reader of history begins to get a much better insight into human affairs, into human nature, and therefore into his own self. Uh, Because we can imagine ourselves existing 100, 500, 1,000 years ago and looking around, observing the events, and taking them in and understanding the people of those eras. And then that's all the better to understand people of our own era and to understand ourselves. So history, I've always thought, is very important, and for many people, uh, sadly, missed area of reading and studies. It's it's an enjoyable one, and uh, Eberhardt was a good writer. Uh, He had a good style. It wasn't novelistic the way some uh, historians are, such as uh, the late Warren Carroll. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many of our listeners might have known him. He died 15, 20 years ago, I forget now. But Warren, whom I knew, was more of a popular historian. He, he was sort of giving history through almost dramatic re, uh, representations of the events. And that's a very useful way to do things. And many people find that attractive. It's a good way to get them into reading history. Eberhart didn't have that style. He was more of a straight historian. Lots of names. Dates, places, events, and so on, but he had great skill in being able to synthesize so many things and to put them, I think, in basically the correct proportions to one another. You know, you, you know, Saint Joan of Arc was a wonderful has a wonderful story associated with her, but it's a very minor histori- story historically, as events go. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, in in British and English and, and French history you know, her participation was a very small thing. Uh, the, but it's an interesting thing. So Eberhardt would be somebody who can give that attention but not over-attention, which sometimes is the case with people who, who try to make maybe a more um, a geographical kind of Catholic history. Uh, so that's one of the things I like about his two-volume set. You can really get a, a balanced understanding of events in church history in a rather short number of pages for any particular
0: event. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know in writing, it's always it's not so much, it's not hard to put things on the paper as much as to figure out what not to put on the paper. You know, I, yeah, I, I think yeah, that's really where the skill is to learn what not to include as much as what to include.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's often very, very hard. Because you sit down, especially if you're writing nonfiction, you know, fiction is a different category. But if you're writing nonfiction, as you and I do, you begin with a lot of research, and then in, then you get yourself in trouble.
0: Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, right, exactly. We're chatting with Carol Keating, talking about the classic uh, work by uh, Newman Eberhardt. More to come on The Other Side of the Break. You're listening to Hands-On This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carol Keating, and uh, we're looking at a classic work by Newman Eberhardt's summary of church history. And, uh, Carol, yeah, uh, it's so important, especially, I think, for historical work, that you would want to throw everything in but the kitchen sink, and that makes it really difficult to read, and uh, it gets confusing with all the details. So, so there has to be a fine line between, uh, you know, having an engaging narrative going on, but also uh, making it substantial, but not over, you know, overcoming the the reader.
1: Yeah, you know, as we went into the break, as mentioning that you and I write nonfiction works, and we run into situation similar to what a historian like Eberhardt would have met. You, know, you want to write something, maybe maybe church, some element of church history or theology or church, church practice, whatever, and you sit down and the first thing you do is you gather a whole slew of material. and You start putting that out and you, you get more and more facts and data and anecdotes and all these kinds of things. And you try to put that into some kind of order. And in the process, you do have to do a lot of culling. You have to set a lot of things aside. You have to decide, uh, do I talk about this particular topic at all? If I do, what page count can I give to it? Uh, Where does it fall in the hierarchy of importance of what I'm trying to say? And all this happens to be on my mind anyway at the moment because I'm uh, halfway through a book by – popular American writer John McPhee, um, who is quite elderly now, but I think this might be his last book. It has a strange title, of Draft Number 4, but the subtitle is really the main title. It's on the writing process. And McPhee explains how he goes about composing his very lengthy articles that over the decades have appeared mainly in the New Yorker magazine. And some of his articles would be book length, ultimately. Like, 40, 50, 60,000 words, and he might spend a year writing a single article, and he had what we would consider nowadays a rather old-fashioned way of gathering data, putting them on, taking them out, cutting slips of paper in pieces, spreading them out on a big table, and seeing what's there, trying to get a sense of how do I even approach this topic to make it sensible to people, and then what things he has to set aside, what things he includes, and so on. Um, so his book is, to me, a very fascinating account of how one well-known writer has had to approach the problem of how do you do nonfiction writing when you've got a zillion facts but you only include a relatively small portion of those? Yeah. And so Eberhard was had must have had the same kinds of things. You know, he was a, a scholar of obvious skill. He must have had Shelves of, of histories already behind him as he worked, and uh, you know, my, my I'm a great fan, as you know, of um, Samuel Johnson, the 18th century British writer. And at one point, Johnson says that to write one book, a man will turn over a whole library. And I imagine Newman Everhart doing something like that. You know, he would have had a substantial library at. St. John Seminary that he can make use of. And there must have been hundreds of various sorts of books on history, maybe thousands. And, you know, so we he have, would have to go through a good number of those, make notes, copy things out, and when he was writing, in pre-computer, it'd be at least on a typewriter, maybe by hand, who knows. And then, how do you organize all that? Uh, and then, then as you get a, a draft done of a section, you've got to go back and say, oh, I'm missing something here. I need to flesh this out or this is too much fluff here or stuff that's not important. I'll drop that. And and you've got hundreds of subsections like that when you're talking about a 2 volume set of 1,800 pages. So this must have been an immense labor for him because sometimes, you know, it's harder to summarize something than to write about it at length. Uh, and Mark Twain once said, you know, he was asked to give a, Lecture for a group, and uh, he, he, he's man. The, the man invited him and said, "You know, how, how long would it take you to get ready?" He says, "Well, it depends. Uh, if you want me to speak for thirty minutes, I'll need six months. If you want me to speak <laughs> for three hours, I'm ready now." Okay, so you know, it's it's easy to say or to write too much, yeah, uh, because you just just let yourself go but then you don't do your listener or your reader of service. So Newman Everhart, you know, whose work I admire considerably, must have spent an awful lot amount of time uh, with the pruning shears out and then ever more delicate instruments to cut, snip here and there uh, to put these uh, two fat volumes together.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You have to have a command of the all the data in order to come up with a, a good summary and uh, to be able to do that for like i said you know t- about 2000 years of church history uh really shows that uh Eberhard knew his stuff and he knew it very well
1: yeah and then then he was blessed with the ability to be able to put it together in in well written prose okay mm-hmm. Because you know, I've, I've come across scholars in a good number of disciplines who certainly know their stuff. I mean, they, they know it's it seemed to me everything that could be known about their area, but they couldn't put a noun against a verb without blowing up something. You know, <laughs> they they just they just could convey what they knew. And on the other hand, you get people who's who's stylistically are almost poetic in their in their prose. It's wonderful. They have no idea what they're talking about, you know? Yeah, so, right. uh, and, and now that's the worst problem, of course, because if you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't be writing at all. But but there are many people who do know what they're talking about, and unfortunately they can't write. Mm-hmm. But thanks be to God, Newman Everhart didn't fall in that category. Uh, he knew what he was talking about. Now, the, the only trouble with, I would say with his book, is that it's not available. Uh, yeah. At the moment, I'm looking at, at uh, uh, Amazon listing for it, and currently unavailable. Currently unavailable. You know? So it's yeah. it's just not there. Now you'd have to go to a specialist uh, used book dealers, just maybe Abe Books, for example, one of those. So they, it can be tracked down, I'm sure. Uh, but this is one of those books that I wish some of those uh, small Catholic publishers that specialize in reprinting old books, would reprint. Uh, I realize this two volume said is fatter than most of the books that they, they go for. But I think that it's, you know, everything he says there is perfectly good today. I don't, I don't think that uh, Catholic historians take on the 19th centuries or so, let's say, that ever looked at. I don't think mm-hmm. that any of their views have changed in any particular way. You know, so what's what's here is as applicable as, as if it had been written last month. Okay. Yeah. But like I say, you know, it goes up to about 1960. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think I, I would like his style, perhaps uh, just because of the utility. It would be easier to find things in him than, say, uh, Warren Carroll's uh, work on Christendom, which I really love. But if someone yeah. asked me a question on a particular topic— uh, it would be a lot harder, I think, to find it in Carroll than in Eberhardt.
1: Yeah, and you know, and Carroll never really finished the series and and it's multi-volumes. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a very good index, you know, in the Eberhardt volumes and he's got, you know, supplementary um, lists at the back for appendices and so on, you know, lists of popes and the bishops of Constantinople and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I like the layout of the book. It's Sections with subsections, so, uh, and they're actually the main sections are actually numbered. So I'm looking toward the end of the first volume, section 137, the conciliar debacle. He's talking about the Council of Basel in 1418 to 31 in those years. So, uh, but then subsections under that are numbered, and below that. Paragraphs begin with some bolded text when they change their emphasis, so it's very easy on the eye, which is a good thing because it's the print is not large, it's not small, but if, if you know mm-hmm. those of us of a certain age certainly need glasses to read it, and uh, and yet you know I, I, I think I think just the layout, the structure, is a testament to everhardt's skill in corralling his evidence, so to speak, and being able to. Uh, put everything in order. So if you or I need to look up something, say for an apologetical argument, and we'll go to the index first, but then once we get to the relative, relevant pages, oh, it's, it's easy to do here. I just flipped over to about 10 lines on the Milvian Bridge with the Emperor Constantine. Remember that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it starts out the Milvian Bridge. All oh, that's in bold, period. And then it goes on to one paragraph about that event. And then, you know, similar things later on, a couple of paragraphs later, the Edict of Milan in 313, so on and so on. So if I need to talk about the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, I, I can instantly find it in this book. You know, I don't have to flip from page to page and wonder where he might have put it. Uh, and then I can get what I need right there. And I've spent 30 seconds and I've refreshed my memory on it. So I find Everhard very Useful, and that's why I'm sad that it's not available in reprint because it really ought to be.
0: Yeah, I was on Amazon before the show, and and Googling as well, trying to find out uh, whether it's still in print. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it just seems like you'd have to go through uh, one of those specialty outlets to get a hold of a copy, and that's too bad. Yeah, it it should be, be a print. used copy, of course. Yeah,
1: yeah it, should, yeah, it really should be in print. So I hope. Uh, that someone who is associated with one of those Catholic firms that reprints old Catholic books will be listening to us today Mm. and will uh, put in mind that I think this is a book that uh, mentally is good to have back in people's hands, but I, I suspect there'd be a good number of people who would want it, because there are a lot of Catholics who are not, you know, maybe they never took church history or history at all much, Uh, in their studies when they went to school, but now in their older years, they want to learn more, and this would be a great way.
0: Absolutely. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about Everhart's uh, summary of church history. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 888 Five two six two one five one here's Gary and welcome back, everybody. hands on apologetics. we're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic work on Newman Eberhardt's summary of church history and uh so Carl I, I this sounds like a work that uh, would be a great introductory work uh, perhaps if not if you don't need to go in depth on a particular subject, but you need to know. Uh, the the gist of it. Uh, this would be a go-to source for history.
1: Yes, you know, if you need to have an intelligent discussion with somebody about an historical event, uh, in the history of the church, Eberhardt is a wonderful place to go because you you learn enough without getting bogged down. I mean, I I just mentioned Constantine and the Milvian Bridge and Edict of Milan that followed and so on. Well, Eberhardt handles that in about a page. But you could go and you can find you a know, 100-page treatment of that by scholars looking at the great details. Well, you don't really need to wade through all that because you don't need some of the details as to, well, you know, what horse did Constantine ride on, that kind of stuff, that hmm. kind of thing is immaterial. To your purposes, you know, why don't you know about those famous events? So Everhart, I think, is just about the, the ideal uh, place to go to. And by the way, during the break... I did go to one of these um, used book sites. The one I, I went to is Abe Books, like Abraham Lincoln, abebooks.com, although I don't think it's named for him. And I and I found a few used copies of the summary of, of uh, Catholic history, but also some recently reprinted, so therefore new and unused volumes. And uh, they're actually Listed as being leather bound, uh, and they were printed uh, about two or three years ago. And but they're new. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned oh, some Catholic outfit ought to do this. Well, these actually have been reprinted by a place in India, uh, and I don't know if it's their Catholic publisher just a secular one that's doing these things. But the prices seem reasonable, especially for leather vo- leather bound volumes. So uh, abebooks.com is a place to look up Eberhardt, and uh, you know there are other places too that might have different offerings, but whether you want the, the set that I had, the original cloth-bound hardback, or these newly done ones, and, and, and they're uh, described as reprinted from the 1962 edition, no changes have been made. So this is a, a book that's a, one of those photographic reprints of mm-hmm. what I have, and then bound in leather, you know, or... Full leather perhaps. Um but but being from India, I don't know, it could be real, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh so anyway, it's possible to get these books. It looks like the prices are not unreasonable, especially for hardbacks of this number of pages. So so our listeners could go to those such a site as A books or some other one. Um even though Amazon is not offering these.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um so does Eberhard? Does he focus on any particular era in church history, or any particular events that he maybe lingers a bit more than any other?
1: You know, uh, I could. I think I could say Eberhard was not a lingerer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he, he. I think he. I think he, one of the things I like about the books, is that I think he gave sensible proportions in page count to the eras and the events that he was looking at. Okay. And he didn't overemphasize, which is a problem with not a few modern historians, both church historians and secular historians. They tend to put far more emphasis on recent events than on older events. Uh, and, you know, didn't th- things get out of balance. Uh, because mm-hmm. we, we, we tend to think then that things of the last century, say, are historically simply much more important than things of a thousand years ago, and yet, yeah. uh, if we were to be alive a century from, from now, looking back at our time, we'd probably say, "Oh, you know, those events were not unimportant, but gosh, things in the past had more influence on what came later than those, you know, events around the year 2000, say." Yeah. So uh, Eberhard doesn't fall into that problem in his late last. Volume, of course, as I say, it goes up to about 1960, but the, proportionally the page count is pretty well, I think, balanced.
0: Yeah, that's hard to do because uh, source material isn't balanced throughout history. I mean, there's no, some no, areas that, and probably that's why the the the, the more recent stuff gets the most uh, ink, is because you know we have so much of information available to us. So that's yeah, a I very disciplined about- way.
1: Yeah, but there's also kind of bias among many historians, Catholic yeah. and secular, of a kind of historical progressivism. Things are always getting more and more important, or they're getting better and better, or what have you. You know, progress is always being made, and therefore, things closer to us have more weight uh, objectively than things further away. But you know, mm-hmm. the most important thing in church history was the incarnation. You know, yeah. that's two thousand years right. ago. Uh, You know, nothing happening in our time is as important as that. Everything is a consequence of that. And I would argue that there are many events, uh, many personalities, say, in church history, who are more important than personalities, even the most popular ones, in our own time. You know, as much as we admire, say, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, there have been a lot of folks that are more important. There have been a lot of writers that have been more important. say, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, you know. Those are, to the minds of some people, those are old fogies because they, they list, existed so long ago. But they were, they influenced history in general and the church in particular in profound ways. And people of our own time, some, you know, will have considerable influence or have had influence. But it's going to be pretty hard to say that anybody of our own lifetime has been an Augustine or a Aquinas or, you know, even Gregory the Great, for example. So it's, but the natural human tendency is to focus on what we know or have heard of, and those are recent things. You know, you Mm -hmm. you can say, you know, presidents, oh, you know, the recent ones have been the most important. Well, maybe in our own lifetimes, but if you look back, I think a good argument can be made that the first half of our presidents were probably better material than the second half of our presidents Mm -hmm. on the whole. Okay. Yeah. So, Uh, I think, again, Upper has produced a wonderful two volumes. I recommend them without any reservation. Uh, If you've got a little cash in your pocket, I recommend getting them. Uh, Uh Because uh, reading through church history, you know, to me as an apologist, it's so important as an apologist. When I wrote my first book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, I meant it, of course, first for Catholics as an audience, but also for Protestants, and because I knew Protestants would read it, especially the fundamentalists. I could not rely on argumentation based on papal decrees or church councils or that kind of stuff, because they gave those no warrant, they gave those no authority. So I relied on three things—Scripture, Church history, and common sense. And common sense, of course, being the rarest, okay? <laughs> but. Uh, But church history I found to be invaluable to prove the Catholic position all the way along, whatever the topic might be. So I was trying to use tools that would work on the minds of my desired audience. And and I think that principle still holds. Church history is good for Catholics and non-Catholics to read, for Catholics to know what their background really is. And for non-Catholics who are Christian to know how the Church really began and where, in their particular cases, there's an offshoot that deverted off incorrectly and adopted some ideas that were not right. Uh, And that's a humbling, sometimes tough experience to go through. But I think it's the kind of thing that people ought to go through, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or even not religious, because I think even a non-religious person reading a book like Eberhard's will come to see the fascination and magnificence of church history and be impressed by the characters, saints and sinners even, of, of church history. Uh, and will begin to think that, ah, maybe there's something here more than I expected. Maybe my rather facile dismissal of Catholicism is just that, facile. And that there's a depth here uh, in the church history that may imply to me that there's a depth in its philosophy and its theology that I've been prejudiced against and I ought to investigate. And for the Protestant, he could read and say, okay, I'm seeing a lot of what Augustine and Aquinas taught that I agree with. Maybe I should investigate a lot of these Catholic writers uh, who I've always been taught really had nothing to teach me, but maybe they have a lot to teach me. And I've seen their roles in Catholic history. Maybe my own history needs to be informed by that Catholic ethos in a way that I hadn't perceived before. You know, So mm-hmm. I think uh, reading church history, especially in, in volumes such as Eberhard's, uh, is one of the best things one can do it's you know it 's good to read devotional works and that kind of stuff. We need to do that we need to have a prayer life, obviously, but one also needs to develop other aspects of the Catholic intellect, and history is one of the most important
0: yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Carl, uh, we're coming up to the end of the show. Uh, just curious, are you working on any manuscripts for new books, um, doing research? Well,
1: yeah, I am. Uh, I'm using Eberhardt and some other historical works. Uh, I'm writing up a uh, what I call a spoof history of the Catholic Church, oh. and I'm about uh, a third of the way done with it. But it's a lighthearted look at uh, what I perceive Catholics to remember of the history they once were taught uh, of of the Catholic Church. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun putting that together. And it will be a book that not only will be entertaining, but informative, and then will be inspiring people to do more serious study of Church history. But yeah. that'll, that'll be a fairly thin work, and uh, I've already got part of it done, and I'm happy with it, and I look forward to over the next few months. I hope to uh, finish it off.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, I was hoping for a two-volume work like Eberhardt, but I'll settle for a smaller version. <laughs> well, that sounds great.
1: If I split it into two volumes, it'd be very thin. So <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll have to settle for for uh, you know if, if it's a couple hundred pages, that'll be about it. But I think right. I think it'll be an enjoyable book, and uh, but we'll have to see. they will be for the judgment of the reader
0: excellent well i look forward to it well carl thank you so much for coming on the show we appreciate it thank you gary all right carl keating and uh you can check out all the great works that carl keating has written on uh go to carlkeating.com and check it out and uh yeah it's already time for me to shut down the midwest command center here turn off the dojo lights thank you so much for listening Coming up next, High Impact catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. We got Wooly. We'll be back again tomorrow for this thing we call hands-on Bye-bye everyone.